Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I have a new problem, though. What? These gas stations limit the amount of gas I can get to $100. You know, when I get oh, to 99, 82, yep. 83, it slows down. 99, yep. 84, 85, 86. And I'm not done filling it up. No, of course not. You got a big Who truck. thought of that idea? That's horrible. Because then I people were driving hard back in. Yeah, well, it's horrible. Yeah, so you're a big uh, truck guy. All right, Priya Misra, I'm not sure if she drives pickup trucks, but she does uh, cover the interest rate world for us. Managing Director and Global Head of Rate Strategy for TD Securities. Priya, I'm looking at the bond market. Boy, the 10-year Treasury is off 1 and 3.30 seconds, pushing that yield up to 3.32%. Is this still kind of fallout from Jackson Hole? What's going on? I think there's a couple of things going on. I mean, I, we're just back after the long weekend. I don't think liquidity is the best. Um, I mean, I think it should get better. We're in September, but I think there's some component of we're getting exaggerated price moves. There is a lot of corporate supply today, and I think that's adding to duration pressure. And then, as, as you said, there's the uh, you know fallout from Jackson Hole, the fact that we have a Fed meeting in two weeks. The, the jobs report was strong, and we had ISM services, which is also strong. So the U.S. economy seems to be holding in there. We think the pressure on the Fed is still there to keep moving those rates higher. And I think all of that is a perfect storm to make rates go up. QT is also continuing. I do think it's a little overdone. I think we're very well priced now for the Fed taking rates up to 4%, keeping it there for a while. And then if you do start to see slowing in growth, we think the Fed does act. So I think the market may have become a little too optimistic in terms of the ability of the economy to take these rate hikes, which I think will have an impact on growth just with the lag. We're not seeing that in the data just yet. What, what happens historically, Priya, what happens historically when you go to, um, you know, a certain level on the Fed funds rate? I don't care what it is, but let's take 4% or 5% or 6%. What happens to 10 right. years? Do they eventually catch up um, to Treasury yields or do they always hold below the Fed funds rate? They tend to hold below because typically the, you know, the Fed is not able to get this soft landing or be able to, to keep rates at that level. So the two year or the very front end can get up to that terminal rate. But then the long end tends to lag because within a year or two of the Fed reaching that terminal rate, they tend to have to start to cut rates. So that's why the long end doesn't catch up. Now, the one big difference this time is QT. The Fed is also letting the balance sheet run off, and that's resulting in more duration supply to the market. I think that this time around is putting a little more pressure in the long end. But I think if the Fed starts to cut rates, they're also going to stop QT. So... You know, right now it seems to be. Ah, well, and is that your call for next then. year? Do you think we go into a recession that's too deep? Unemployment rises too high. American families have trouble um, keeping jobs, putting food on the table, and the Fed has to cut rates and stop QT. 
Pretty much. Yes, you said it well. I mean, we are looking, unfortunately, for the economy to slow down. And it's hard for me to uh, justify the Fed's 4.1 on the unemployment rate. I mean, if it starts to rise, typically the the unemployment rate doesn't rise that gradually. It tends to rise. It tends to accelerate once it rises. So, yeah, we're thinking closer to 5% in the second half of next year on the unemployment rate, forcing the Fed to start to cut rates. I mean, I think they'll, they'll be late in starting to cut rates because they are fighting the inflation problem. But once they start, I do think they're at least getting to neutral and they'd have to stop QT at that point as well. It's hard for them to justify cutting rates and still undertaking QT. But I think that's not something they're going to admit to right now. They're going to let the data determine it. Right now, it's inflation is public enemy number one. And that's why I think the focus is whether they go 75 or 50 at the September meeting. So Priya, does TD Securities, do you guys have an official recession call or do you think this Fed can soft land it? So we have a slowdown in growth okay. call. You know, you're zero percent growth. When you're growing at zero, it doesn't take a lot yep. to slip into recession. So it's a shallow slowdown in growth that we do pencil in, and that's why we've penciled in rate cuts in the end of QT next year. All right, I'm going to talk corporate real estate. So TD Securities, you guys are at one Vanderbilt, is that right, Priya? It is. Yes. Is a that the new building. building right next to Grand Central? Exactly. It yes. looks nice. awesome. I mean, yeah, tell us how. Cool. I mean, I'm not sure you even go there if you work from home, but it looked when they were putting it up, I was like, holy cow, this is going to be awesome. Now it's a great building. I've been in the office uh, since, you know, for over a year and uh, it's filling up now that I think we're, we have a few, few floors and there's the summit. If you haven't been to the summit, it's great. It's a glass bottom. I'm not a huge fan of heights, but <laughs> it's very impressive when you look down on the glass bottom floor and see all of New York. So Ooh, that's, that's a good a, building. I nice. want to do that. Let's do that. We'll, yeah. We can walk down. We there. need the invite, though. Yes, we need the invite. Priya has, to, Priya has to invite us. Any in. day. <laughs> Any day. All right, Priya. So just real, real quickly here, coming up in a couple sure. of weeks from this Federal Reserve, what would be a mistake where everybody goes, oh, boy, here we go? Uh, you know, you can think of two-sided mistakes. I think one mistake would be if they suggest that they might be getting close to being done. Because just because oil prices are lower and yep. inflation seems to be, have peaked, that would be one mistake. The other mistake would be to say, oh, no, we're going until 2% on year-over-year uh, -year inflation. I think that's a mistake I'm really nervous about because it just inflation is a very lagging indicator. And if they ignore growth, they're absolutely going to overdo it because inflation is going to take a while to come down to respond to slowing growth. So there are two-sided risks. Yep. After Jackson Hole, I'm more concerned about the overdoing because we need to really win that inflation battle, right. uh, even if it means a slowing growth. I this Priya. Fed, man, if they, they waited too long to raise rates, and now they're going to raise rates too late and too long. And then maybe they'll even cut them too soon. We'll have to see. Priya Miser, she'll have insight for us along the way, as always, Managing Director and Global Head of Rate Strategy for TD Securities, also an ambassador for one Vanderbilt Avenue. Got to check that building out. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. All right, one of the fastest growing areas in investing is ESG, environmental, social, governance. Uh, Sure enough, the largest exchange-traded fund investing in ESG, that would be the iShares ESG Aware MSCI USA ETF. Yep, that's what I got it all in there. Increases assets by 4,700 times to $24 billion since its inception in 2016. But Mr. Ron DeSantis, the governor of the great state of Florida, I don't think he's really buying into it, but let's get into this story. Matt Winkler, Editor-in-Chief Emeritus and Founder of Bloomberg News, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. You've got a column out today looking at Florida, looking at their governor, Ron DeSantis, and his views on ESG investing. What did you find? So, Paul and Matt, great to be with you. Ron DeSantis, Governor of Florida, first-term Governor of Florida, uh, highly educated, went to Yale and uh, Harvard Law School. Uh, has an initiative that prohibits the state of Florida, which is the third largest state and which has about 210 billion of assets under management, from considering what you just mentioned as ESG criteria for investing. Uh, The trouble is with that initiative, it goes against Florida's own, very own dictum that says we must consider performance, total return, as the uh, yardstick, if you like, for measuring our returns. And if you do that, ESG absolutely crushes uh, every other benchmark uh, over any time period during the past decade. So his own initiative is at odds with the essential requirement for the Florida retirement system to manage on the basis of performance. So, but it's possible he's not as concerned about performance, financial performance, as he is about politics, right? Because he's made a number of really provocative moves already that draw him into the national spotlight and set him up for a presidential run. Yeah, I mean, it it is seemingly a very political ploy on his part because uh, he is educated enough to know that uh, every fiduciary has an obligation to earn the highest return at the lowest volatility for shareholders and bondholders alike. And if that is your focus, then you have to consider ESG in your investing. And if you don't, your shareholders, your bondholders, your pensioners will all suffer. Does the data support that, Matt? What what did you see? I know you and Shinpei, your colleague, always dive into the data for your arguments. What's the data show you in terms of So it's it's 
Very conclusive. Uh, we have a decade's worth of data on the Bloomberg. We look at every, if you like, uh, exchange-traded fund that invests everywhere, and those that invest in what we call ESG um, are over five years, over 10 years, over two years, um, outperforming by orders of magnitude the benchmarks, the traditional benchmarks of investing, whether it's the S&P 500, whether it's the Russell 3000, whether it's uh, any uh, fossil fuel uh, index that uh, lately has been a star because of the war in Ukraine and the uh, rise in, in oil and energy, traditional energy. ESG has done better than anything else, and uh, that's not um, a secret, actually. Or <laughs> surprising, right? I mean, people, look, people started 10 years ago buying electric cars on the consumer level because they want to uh, guard against climate change or push back against climate change. And obviously, mom and pop investors are going to be doing that if they feel that way. They're going to invest with their hearts as well as their pocketbooks. And now we have huge institutions coming in and doing it as well. I mean, BlackRock has $10 trillion <laughs> in assets under management, and they are watching this. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Uh, if you look at BlackRock, uh, people may have forgotten that BlackRock really saved uh, the U.S. from the worst of the financial crisis. BlackRock was the one institution that came in and helped the U.S. government uh, sort out uh, what was uh, a disaster, uh, the likes of which we hadn't seen in, in a couple generations. You have to go back to the Depression. So put it on fast forward. Uh, a company called Tesla uh, making zero-emission vehicles in uh, starting in, say, 2010, uh, and when it went public, and then 2012, it introduces the Model S. And Tesla today, as a car, as a car company, uh, has the highest market valuation in the world among uh, automakers. It's more than three times uh, the value of Toyota, which sells more vehicles than anyone. But uh, by, Tesla, by, a, by a wide margin, I mean, Tesla sells, what, half a million vehicles a year, and Toyota must sell 12 million right. vehicles a year. Right, and so what year. does that tell you? The market, if you like which is not ideological, which is not political, uh, the market which is just about what's cheap and what's expensive and relative value says Tesla is by far the most valuable company and that's because there is a convergence of policy and people's preferences and Tesla is an example of that. And uh, it's an example of what's happening uh, to investing worldwide, which is why uh, you know, the total amount of money committed to ESG is something like $35 trillion, mm. which is obviously bigger than the U.S. economy. Wow. So, I mean, if I'm, you know... By twi twice, twice the size about, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, if, if I'm a teacher in Florida or any pension holder, I got to say, okay, so you're telling me my returns are going to be lower because you have this perhaps politically driven ideology as it relates to ESG. Is there any pushback from within the state or? Well, what I would like to see is exactly, I mean, it's one thing for the governor of Florida to say, this is what we're doing. It's quite another thing to see what Florida does. Okay. If Florida adheres to its mandate, which is get the best or the highest total return with the least volatility, it will have to consider ESG investing, uh, whatever the initiative says. What do you what do you think about um, engine number one or arc? I mean, wh where do you think the most exciting um, ESG investments are coming from? 
Well, you know, look, I've, I've been, as you well know, uh, many times with the two of you said that to me, Tesla is one of the most exciting uh, events um, because as a disruption, yep. it has changed really the face of the automobile industry, I think, forever, uh, and that we are inexorably going to uh, electric vehicles. So that that is my my choice, if you like, as an example. And it's not just cars. I just saw some ads for electric boats. I mean, anything that has an yeah, internal combustion we just, we engine. We just had one come out. It has a 50 yeah. nautical mile range. <laughs> it has a cruising speed of 20 knots and a top speed of 30 knots. And that's pretty incredible for a $99,000 boat that can hold your whole family. I'm excited about this product. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, Matt Winkler, thank you so much uh, for joining us. As always, Matt Winkler, Editor-in-Chief Emeritus uh, and the founder of Bloomberg News so many years ago, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. He's got his column out here looking at ESG investing, looking at it in the lens of Florida and the governor there, Ron DeSantis. You can, you can type, type that. You can type N.I. Winkler on the Bloomberg. Can you? He's got yeah, his own he's got thing. It. Of course he of has course his own. He does. But you can he's also type O-P-I-N go. Code. Okay. Yeah. And then you can go uh, Bloomberg.com slash uh, O-P-I-N. Yeah, Bloomberg.com slash opinion. opinion. Right. Yeah. For those people that use that intro web thing. There's a lot going on in the UK, potential recession, surging inflation, an energy crisis, and now a change in the prime minister. How are markets reacting to that? Well, of course, when we need a voice on the UK, we go to somebody who was born and raised outside of Roanoke, Virginia, in literally the middle of nowhere. But he's now in London. Tim Craighead, director of research, senior European strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's been in London. We had him in Hong Kong running our business there for years. New York. The guy's been everywhere. Uh, Tim, a lot going on. You're on holiday because I follow you on social media and you're biking all over the island of England, but you were trained to Goldman Sachs. That means you're on call 24-7. So when we need a voice on the European markets, we go to Tim Craighead. Tim, what's going on in the investing markets? There's a lot of cross-currents. Uh, there are, and thanks for having me on uh, from the uh, sunny coast of South Devon. Uh, but, um, you know, the... the, the the cross currents are are crazy. Looking at things this afternoon, you've got oil down three dollars a barrel. If you look at Brent crude, um, you've got interest rates that continue to trade up. Um, you've got economic stats that are waning. Um, new lockdowns across China uh, with a, a tumbling currency there, and on the currency front, every every currency it seems under the shining sun uh, is weak against the dollar. So you know, bring all that to bear. Uh, in in the UK here, we announce a new prime minister, and Liz Truss comes into uh, comes into office post her her meeting with the Queen uh, today, and you know she faces a, a, a storm. Um, interesting, with all of that in context, the UK market is essentially flat. So yeah, they, they, it kind of tells you something right there from the standpoint of what's discounted in the market at this point. Well, and right now I see a pound trading for a dollar fifteen. Um, I'm not sure that has as much to do with Liz Truss as it has to do with, um, you know, everything else that's going on there from, you know, inflation. I think Goldman Sachs put out a report saying it could go to 22 wow. percent to concerns about an IMF bailout. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, you know, IMF bailout, I think, is a bit on the extreme side. Um, one thing that was key today with Truss coming into, into office is there's been a, a, a void from the standpoint of what government policy 
would be given the energy crisis here in the UK and more broadly across Europe. And um, an ongoing growing list of big economies, big government um, has been announcing policies to help get businesses and consumers through the winter. And indeed, um, there was fear in the UK that Liz Truss would come in with an ultra-right-wing conservative approach of cutting taxes and not offering handouts, as she likes to call them. But you know, before she's even in the office, um, you know, Bloomberg News actually found today um, uh, the, the draft of a proposal to offer upwards of $40 billion in support to business and $130 billion in potential support for consumers to get through energy crisis by essentially – capping energy prices now. So that 22% inflation rate would have would have uh, essentially been driven in large part by huge escalations in energy prices. By the way, I love when politicians do happen. I love when politicians do massive U-turns on campaign promises the <laughs> day they come into office, you know? There you go. Uh, politics. Remember read my lips no new taxes. Sure. Yeah, that, that at least that took him like a, a year or two, right? Right. right. But that cost him a re-election. <laughs> so yeah. Tim but I mean, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Tim. Now, as you can say, part of that part of that pound weakness was a lot of the concern that you'd have all sorts of havoc with a you know lower tax rates in the middle of a of a of a crazy period in the economy. And in fact, the first thing we're seeing some support is for the domestic economy. You know, for FTSE, it doesn't really matter because as we've talked before, it's a mostly globally oriented, uh, a big international you know, brand franchises and consumer and healthcare, et cetera. The weak pound's actually a, a boon to those guys. So, Tim, uh, Matt and I were discussing, it's been a few years since we've been in the UK. If I, what's, what's your favorite pint cost you in Devon today? <laughs> that, that's a critical question on holiday. Um, you notice I say holiday, not vacation. Yep. Um, and I noticed two weeks in a row, by the way. See, he's yeah, definitely getting yeah, used yeah, to his whole yeah, European yeah. thing. There you go. So somewhere around uh, seven or eight pounds, but you could find them in London, you know, north of 10 right now if you go to the wrong pub. Really? I, I, that's inflation, dude. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have a list, by the way, if you ever are down in uh, Chelsea or, or Fulham. I like the Hollywood Arms a lot. I'm a big fan of the Builder's Arms. I like the Duke of Clarence. I like the Duke on the Green. Um, and I love the Anglesey arms if you really want to hang with kind of the Euro trash there. But there's so many. See, see, yeah. The right place is the Washington in Belsize Park. And that's named after George, by the way. Really? Wow. That's he has right. his own pub. Yeah, exactly. All right, Tim, enjoy the holiday uh, biking around um, southern England. Uh, he's, he's into this biking thing. He, the whole family. It's kind of. It's a dad always, thing. Yeah. It's, 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 my dad's into it, too. He's very You're a Peloton fit. guy, so you're, yeah. you're, you're, but he also, you're all about he it. He also, like, rock climbs, too. So, I mean, I don't know what's going on. Very cool. Tim Craighead, he's a director of research, senior European strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based in London. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. 
Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. said that in the next life i want to come back as a healthcare MA banker every week it seems like there's a big blockbuster healthcare deal and banks are getting paid left and right today cvs to buy signify health in an eight billion dollar deal cvs you know big pharmacy company healthcare services company 130 billion dollar market cap it's a big company stocks down about four percent year to date kind of flat today let's dive into this deal jonathan palmer senior equity research analyst uh, and team leader for Bloomberg Intelligence, also a proud graduate of the Penn State University, which uh, had a good road win this weekend to start the year. All right, Jonathan, CVS, Signify Health, tell us what's going on here. Well, Paul, you, you hit the nail right on the head when you mentioned services company. And CVS has kind of three legs to the stool. They have their retail stores. They have what they call their PBM or pharmacy benefit manager, which, which manages drug benefits. And then they have their insurer, Aetna. And really, all these companies in the healthcare services universe want to expand their service offering. And, and Signify does that in a meaningful way for CVS because Signify is in the home and they have assets where they send people out to people's house to do evaluations and manage care. And so the next step after, you know, we've had the pandemic here from the virtual care is home care. Yeah, I mean, if... Uh if I'm right, looking at the medical industry, everything's going towards telemedicine, um, home care, or a CVS, right? Because there's no reason anymore to go to the medical um, offices compound or to your local GP. Um, you can do it all by phone, by phone or by Zoom. And um, you know, the only time I need to interact with somebody is when I get my booster shot, and I'll do that down the street. Yeah, the market's definitely moving in that direction, and really the, the pandemic was a catalyst for it. And, you know, we've seen a, a lot of care move out of traditional settings into the home and the, and the virtual spaces. And we've seen Amazon move, you know, with One Medical to, to kind of follow suit here. So is this a – tell us about Signify. What is, what's special about these guys? Why is it worth $8 billion? Well, they, they operate in a niche, and I don't want to bore you with the details of what they actually do on a day-to-day -day basis, but really they, they help manage uh, Medicaid and ma managed care, medi managed care, Medicaid, and Medicare Advantage uh, participants. Every year, these people need to see a doctor. Um, if the plan doesn't have them come into the office, they send somebody out to see them okay. do an evaluation. It's part of the business model, and it really fills a niche. And so what CVS is hoping to do is, is uh, expand that niche. There's about 85 million people in those, those two buckets, and Signify is only seeing about 2 million of those a year, and build more services around that, that home platform. You know, you mentioned CVS had acquired 
Aetna. I've forgotten all about that deal. And when that deal was announced, I had no idea what CVS was doing. How is that? I mean, Aetna's a big insurance company. What's a drugstore company doing buying an insurance company? How, how has that played out over the last couple of years? Well, they've finally gotten to a point where the debt level from, from the deals down, and, and it's finally kind of realizing the vision that they foresaw, where they have this expand, expanded platform where they offer a little bit of everything. You know, CVS probably doesn't really want to be in the retail drugstore business anymore. Really? There's, there's That's the Amazons my, and Costco's really? and Walmarts. But they yeah. want to turn those locations into service centers, and okay. they have things like health hubs that they're offering, where instead of going to your, yeah, uh, you know, true. your local GP, you'll just pop into your CVS, get your blood pressure checked, get your meds, do an evaluation. So, the evolution of healthcare is is expanding, in where we see more of the traditional players kind of spreading their tentacles out. You know, whether it's Walgreens, whether it's Amazon, whether it's Walmart, everybody wants to be in the healthcare game. I can't believe they want to get out of the drugstore business. I, I mean, know. that's where I go. It's like a one-stop shop for everything. Yeah. Well, except for cigarettes, right? Right. Can't buy cigarettes at CVS, right? No, not for a while. <laughs> but, well, I remember when that came across, and obviously it makes perfect sense. But I wonder if they're going to ever start selling weed. You know, because they do CBD already, right? That's a good question. I, I, I don't know if that fits in the mantra of CVS health, but we'll, we'll see. <laughs> Mental health. So talk to us about just your space, General, 30 seconds, Jonathan. What's the hot area that, that you're covering right now? What do your investor clients want to talk about the most? Yeah, well, I think the, one of the, the, the key areas is, is, is actually this, this space that we're talking about right now, which okay. is technology-enabled assets. And so we've seen a big retreat in valuations from um, the peak of the pandemic last year where everybody was really bulled up on virtual care. And now we're starting to see, now that these stock prices have come back, you know, One Medical getting picked up by Amazon. We see Signify getting picked up by CVS. We think there's more to come. What is Amazon going to do in healthcare? That sounds like a monster vertical they could do. Well, I think that's the that's the plan, although they haven't executed so far. Right. I mean, their pharmacies really nowhere right now. They had a business for employers called Amazon Care, which they just announced that they're going to fold, Yep. which they're now going to use uh, One Medical probably to, to, to be the beachhead there. So... Healthcare is hard. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I don't understand it at all. That's why we have smart people like Jonathan Palmer to kind of walk us through some of the stuff. All right, Jonathan Palmer, senior equity research analyst and team leader. He covers, uh, does all the healthcare stuff here, manages the team of analysts we have here at Bloomberg Intelligence. All right, let's talk cybersecurity. I kind of been telling my kids who've been entering the workforce over the last several years, it's not plastics is the future. It's cybersecurity. I think that's going to be a long-term growth story. Sean Joyce, global cybersecurity and privacy leader at PwC. Sean, give us a sense of, I don't know, the, the C-suite folks you talk to, the board members you talk to, do you think they're putting cybersecurity risk, they're giving it enough attention? So I think it's a great question, and I think they it is coming to the forefront of the board agenda. And there probably isn't a boardroom that I go into where they're not talking about a digital transformation. And I would argue that within that digital transformation, technology is that central nervous system for many companies in confirming that their data is secure and protected is really and can be brand defining. You know, and I, and I would just add, you know, the, the boardroom became very concerned during the Russian-Ukrainian conflict or war. And, you know, what should we do? Do we have any business there, operations? And I would just say that is the first time that we've really seen 
cyber as a risk come to the forefront from a from this perspective? First, it's overt cyber cyber warfare in between Ukraine and Russia. We're seeing seven wiper viruses that have been deployed. We're seeing infrastructure being targeted, satellites being targeted, and obviously an ongoing informational war. The second thing is we're actually seeing crowdsourcing and civilian groups acting on behalf of nation states. So not only are you seeing it coming to the forefront on the board agenda, but this threat is becoming more complex. And I think a lot of companies struggle to really handle this risk effectively. Does a major company automatically outsource this or do they, does anybody try and take it on themselves? I think you'll see some of the more mature companies, especially when you're talking financial services, defense contractors, a lot of them take it on themselves uh, because it's critical to what they do each and every day and part of their brand. And I would add the tech companies too. I think there are other sectors and companies that should outsource different aspects of this cyber risk, right? We're talking about cyber risk. Right. And really, if it's not the main part of what they do as a business, I would say I would outsource that to someone who has that expertise. By the way, do you have any headline numbers? I mean, we always talk about how many hundreds of billions of dollars are stolen in crypto every year, but it seems to me, um, you know, much more damage can be done um, when you're talking about huge financial uh, entities like the big Wall Street banks or, you know, a Walmart or, um, you know, a Cigna Healthcare? I mean, how much damage is done in dollar terms via cybercrime every year? I would say easily tens of billions of dollars are being done by, you know, cyber criminals and nation states each and every year. And that's not just you know, through cybercrime and fraud and account takeovers. It's all through, also through the theft of intellectual property from companies. Just recently, we saw a breach or a ransomware event of a U.S. company, and they lost $100 million just in operations and the inability to actually produce their product. So this definitely is having a critical effect on business operations, and I think, you know, unlike what you probably talk about on your show when you talk about credit risk and market risk, cyber risk is newer. And I think a lot of people, because of the educational gap and not being digital natives, as I said, it's a challenge to really deal with this risk versus some of the other traditional risks that, you know, you and I have heard of historically that many people are familiar with. Sean, you're deputy director of the FBI. I'd love to get your perspective on, you know, kind of how prepared do you think the U.S. government is and all of the interests aligned with the government is for cybersecurity? Because it just seems like the risks, whether it's coming from, you know, nation states or others, are just almost impossible is that to a manage. Pen- is that a Pentagon issue or does that yeah. fall under, does the FBI have its own uh, division there? Does the you know um, the the White House have its own cybersecurity people, or or do you have okay. one branch that overlooks it for everybody? So currently in the administration, so to answer your question directly, there is not one agency that handles everything, mm. uh, and, and I believe there should be an approach and a whole of government approach for those agencies to come together. However, 
I think this administration has done some great steps forward, you know, with the establishment. You know, CISA has, you know, just pushed through in legislation the National Cyber Incident Reporting Act, right? We're seeing them do things like Shields Up, which is really companies coming together and how do they help protect each other. Um, CISA has also established the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative, right? When you look at the FBI, they have really pushed on their public-private partnerships, how they're actually helping companies defend along with the NSA. So it is really a collection of agencies. Um, And like you're saying, though, I think that needs to be revisited and look at how can the government approach this from more of a next century approach versus maybe historically how how they've done that. The Bureau specifically, the FBI, they have a cyber division. They have over a thousand people that are working this each and every day throughout the country and overseas. So they're coordinating with many different agencies. And that, as you know, is one of their highest priorities of what they do each and every day. All right, Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate that. Sean Joyce, Global Cybersecurity and Privacy Leader for PwC. Uh, again, was a, a deputy director at the FBI, so he kind of gets it from um, the you know the private company side as well as the governmental side. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at Matt Miller 1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.